Amen. Good morning to you all. Thankful that you're here. I want to say good morning to those who may be visiting with us for the first time. I want to welcome you. We're glad that you've come to fellowship with us this morning, and we hope that your eyes will be directed um, not just to um, some of the things that may be new or different, but we hope that you'll see the Lord today, that you'll see him in his word, that you will encounter his truth, and that it will minister to your soul. Uh, Good morning to those who are watching at home. Uh, We're glad that you're able to tune in with us today. And we trust that your hearts will be directed to the Lord as well. I'd like to invite everyone to open your Bibles this morning to uh, Exodus chapter 20. Over the last several weeks, we've been working our way through the Ten Commandments. That's where we happen to be in our study through the book of Exodus. We've come to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And God begins, introduces his law with these ten words. And our text today will be covering the Fourth commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. I'm going to read our text and then we'll pray together. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Father, we come to you this morning with hearts that are grateful that you have revealed yourself to us and spoken to us in your word. Revealing your nature, your person, showing us who you are, and also revealing to us your will, how it is that we can know you, and what your desire is for us, how we should live. Lord, we come today in faith, believing that your law is perfect, reviving the soul. Lord, we confess this morning that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Your precepts. Lord, are right, rejoicing the heart. Your commandment is pure, enlightening the eyes. Lord, we believe what your word tells us, that the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, and your rules are true and righteous altogether. God, you tell us that your word is to be more desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And by keeping them, we, your servants, are warned, and by keeping them, there is great reward. God, help us to believe that this morning and to approach your word with a heart that is humble and open and hungry. I pray that your spirit would cause us to receive your word, to delight in it, to believe it, and to obey it. So we pray now that your spirit would accomplish this work in us, and we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the Sabbath command, the fourth commandment, is what we come to today. And this is one of the commandments that probably gets the most debate and raises the most questions when people read this text today. And it's interesting because, you know, time, if you think about time, time is something that we measure, that we organize in various ways. One day is how long it takes for the earth to spin on its axis, right? 
One year is how long it takes for the earth to complete its orbit and to travel around the sun. One month is based on how long it takes the moon to travel around the earth. So we see some of these measurements of time and even the numbers that we use actually in the creation itself. We see it all around us. But where did the seven-day week come from? Why not five days? Why not 12 days? Uh, Why is it that we even have a week? Well, the seven-day week does not come from anything that's observable today in the natural realm. It was given to us as a rhythm of life at the beginning. This pattern of six days of work and rest on the seventh is something that is formalized here in the Ten Commandments. And that's important to understand. Remember, these Ten Commandments, this is not the, this is not the invention of new laws and new truths. No, this is just God making things official that are eternal principles that flow out of who he is as the Lord, the eternal God. These laws are that which conforms to his character and reflects his will. And they are always true. So as we'll see, this pattern of resting for six or working for six and resting on the seventh, this is not just a practical tip for longevity. This is not some sort of life hack to help you feel happy and whole. It is actually something that has a deeply spiritual significance for God's people. It flows out of who God is and what God has done. The central idea this morning is very simply this. As creatures made by God and saved for God, we are to set aside regular time for rest and worship. As creatures made by God and saved for God, we are to set aside regular time for rest and worship. That is the principle that comes to us today from this ancient command, this fourth commandment that God speaks to his people there at Mount Sinai. So I want to break up the message this morning into a couple chunks. First, to look at the historical significance of the fourth commandment. What did it mean for Israel? What what did it mean? How did it fit uh, into their life as the covenant people of God in the Old Testament. And then I'd like to offer some theological clarifications uh, and then finally move to uh, how is it that we can practically apply these truths today. So first, the historical significance. We need to understand the concept of the Sabbath. What is this concept? What does the word Sabbath mean? Sabbath comes from the uh, Hebrew word Shabbat and it has the idea of stopping or ceasing, specifically from Work. This word Sabbath appears about 45 times in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible. And the first time we find this word Sabbath is in Exodus chapter 16. In fact, why don't you flip back there? It's only a few pages. Exodus chapter 16, starting in verse 23. The first example we have is during that period where Israel had just come through the Red Sea. And they're now in the wilderness on their way to Mount Sinai where they're supposed to meet with God. And the crisis is, on multiple occasions, they don't have water and they don't have food. And God is teaching them to trust him. And he promises to provide, among other things, manna from heaven. Look in verse 23. God says to them, this is, or Moses says to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest a holy Sabbath to the Lord. There's that word, this idea, introduced, Sabbath. And he says, bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil 
and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. They're supposed to take this double portion that they gather on the sixth day and make preparations for the seventh because it's supposed to be special, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Verse 24 says, So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. God supernaturally preserved the manna so it didn't rot. Verse 25, Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. This story, as we saw several weeks ago, this whole event was intended to be a test of their faith, to see if the people trusted God enough to not go out and look for food. You see, on previous days, they had stored up more than they were supposed to, and that manna, that, that strange substance, that bread from heaven, it had worms, and it stunk, and it had gone putrid, and they couldn't eat it. And so they were supposed to only gather enough for one day at a time, for six days a week, trusting that tomorrow God would provide new manna. But then on the sixth day, they're supposed to gather a double portion and not go out to look for it, trusting that God would preserve what they had already gathered. And though the manna would eventually come to an end, it only was provided while they were in the wilderness, not when they entered into the land of Canaan. This idea of Sabbath did not end. It was supposed to be a perpetual thing for Israel. And so it's sort of codified and put into law here in the Ten Commandments. And it applied to everyone. If you flip back to chapter 20, you see that this is not just for the men. It's not just for adults. It's not just for native-born Israelites. It's for everyone. It's for their children, their servants, even their animals, even the sojourner who's within their gates, you know, hired foreign workers. And as we'll see later on in the law of Moses, even the land itself was supposed to be given rest every seventh year. So this idea applies across the board. This idea of stopping, this idea of resting. And the command specifically that they're given here in verse 8 is to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember. This idea of remembrance is always an important concept in Scripture. It is essential that we remember. And remembering, in terms of devotion to God, like we see here, requires a lot more than just making a mental note. Those of you who are married can maybe think of it this way. Philip Ryken, as I was studying what his comments on this text, he sort of made the analogy to remembering your anniversary. So husbands, imagine waking up on your anniversary, maybe an important one, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, something like that. And you go about your day, you know, business as usual. You don't do anything different. You don't make any special plans. And at the end of the day, your wife goes, didn't you remember today's our anniversary? You go, oh yeah, I remembered that. It's the first thing I thought of this morning. Is that really remembering your anniversary? No. Well, it, maybe it works in your marriage, but it, it probably doesn't work in most. This idea of remembrance, and especially what we'll see with the concept of Sabbath, is more than just mentally acknowledging something as true. Oh yeah, I remember that happened one time. It, it actually implies the involvement of the whole person. The whole person, your entire being participates in this, and special effort is to be set aside to devote yourself to remembering the Sabbath. So it means a whole lot more than just a thought. Specifically, it's to be observed, according to this text, as a whole entire day of rest. There's to be no unnecessary work done. 
Obviously, you got to make dinner and maybe clean up some dishes afterwards. There's some necessary work we do every day, but no unnecessary work was to be done. It was to be an entire day of rest. Now, why would God command this? Why would God command the Sabbath? Well, he tells us the purpose right here in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, to keep it holy. What does it mean that a day can be holy? Days don't sin, right? We often think of holiness meaning not sinning. So how can a day commit sin? That's not what's in view here. The idea of holy has this this meaning of being set apart, being kept unique, specifically to be dedicated for a sacred purpose. This day among the seven days of the week is to be set apart, unlike the other days, and dedicated to a sacred purpose. It's not just business as usual. It's a different kind of day. And notice here that the people don't make it holy. They are to keep it holy. If you look down in verse 11, it says, God is the one who made it holy. It says, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. So God makes it holy. God sets it apart. We're supposed to keep it holy. His people here are commanded to remember it, to keep it as a response to God and a recognition of what he had done. So in what way did God make the Sabbath holy? Well, there's three ways in which God has established the holiness of this day, where God has set apart this day. And the first we find in this text, the second two reasons, we'll go to some other passages. But number one, God established the pattern of the Sabbath in creation. That's how he made it holy. He established this pattern of Sabbath in the creation. We see this in verse nine. It says, for, here's the reason why you're supposed to rest from your working. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God worked for six days in creating the world, forming it and filling it, and then on the seventh day, God stood back and he smiled on his creation. He said it was very good. And he rested from his working. Now, God did not rest because he was tired. God rested because he was satisfied, because his work was complete. And he now was enjoying his creation, delighting in it, saying, this is very good. I like this. I like this. And this sets a pattern for us. Keeping the Sabbath for the people of Israel was to be an acknowledgement of God as creator, that God had made them and made everything else. And one way they could reflect his image as his special people was to set apart this day and rest because that's what their God did. They worshiped this God and so they're supposed to become like him to some degree. And so God has established this pattern of rest in creation. And there's great blessing in this. You know, following this pattern would have brought natural refreshment for them. There's great wisdom in recognizing the goodness of this pattern. Think about it. We're not supposed to try to outpace God in our working. Rather, it's good for us to follow his example and rest. It's good for us to delight in what God has made. It's good for us to rest from our working and enjoy the fruit of our labor. God establishes this pattern in creation. He set it apart and made it holy. But God also made this holy in a second way. God established the importance of the Sabbath in his work of redemption. In redemption. God established the importance of Sabbath and redemption. So there's God's work of creation and there's also God's work of redemption. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 5. 
Deuteronomy is a second giving of the law. There's a second generation of Israelites who are about to go into the promised land. And Moses gives them a recap of the law. And so we find another list of the Ten Commandments here in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And it's interesting, on this second sort of sermon on the Ten Commandments, Moses pulls out another feature of the Sabbath, Deuteronomy 5 verse 12. He says, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. So far this sounds familiar. But here's where Moses brings in sort of a new point of view. Verse 15, he says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The Sabbath captures this pattern of God resting in creation. But their resting on the seventh day was also a response to God's work of redemption. What he had done in bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. Think about it. Serving Pharaoh for all those years, meant endless toil. They had been slaves in Egypt. But serving God, this new situation that they find themselves in, includes rest and refreshment. Pharaoh commanded them to make bricks without straw, but God commands them to stop working one day out of seven. What a change. This is a drastic shift. Everything is different when God redeems a person and they embrace this new posture of being a servant of the Lord and not a slave to sin or something else. There is freedom that comes with that. There's blessing that comes with that. There were no breaks in Egypt. There was no rest for the weary. But serving Yahweh was a different kind of a thing. And keeping the Sabbath was a way to remember what God had done for them and acknowledge the redemption that God had accomplished on their behalf. Remember, this is why God had saved them out of Egypt. He had told Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me. And serving God includes resting, stopping, and remembering what God has done for us in his great work of redemption. This very naturally leads us to starting to see the Sabbath is about being being about a lot more than just rest. The Sabbath is also about worship, to remember the God who has redeemed us and poured out his grace on us. It's interesting, throughout the Old Testament law, 15 different times, God speaks to Israel about my Sabbaths. God calls the seventh day his day. It's a day for remembering what he did for them. Redemption from slavery. It's a day for remembering their identity as the chosen people of God, those who are the recipients of his promises. It's a day for remembering God's purpose for them. They're to be a holy people, a distinct people who are different than the nations around them because they serve and worship God. All this Sabbath language, yes, the Sabbath brings blessing and rest. It's nice to stop and take a break, but it's for God more than it's for them. 
It is a Sabbath day not for Israel. It is a Sabbath day to the Lord. This really helps us see this commandment as being very much connected to the three that came before it. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. It's about worship, isn't it? Exclusive worship. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image. We must worship God in the right way. This is also about worship. The third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This God who we worship is glorious and worthy of honor and fear. This is about worship too. And then we come to the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's actually also about worship. It's not a new, different idea. This is part of how they were to worship God. It's all about how we relate to God. These first four commandments, it's the first table of the law, and it's oriented towards God. Yes, there's blessing for us, but ultimately it is to him, for him. It's about him. This means the Sabbath is about way more than just taking a break and catching a nap on the weekend. The importance of the Sabbath is established in redemption. It signifies new life, a life lived for God under his gracious rule, a life of worship. So there's a pattern established in creation, but the importance of the Sabbath is really seen in God's work of redemption. So in these two ways, God has set apart this day and made it holy, what he did in creation, what he did in redemption. But there's a third way in which God has made the Sabbath holy for the people of Israel. Number three, God established the significance of the Sabbath in the covenant. It's part of the covenant. Turn over to Exodus chapter 31, since we're kind of in the neighborhood already. Exodus 31, starting in verse 13. It says, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Above all? Really? Taking a nap on Saturday, is that important? Well, listen to what God says. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. There's a pattern of rest in the creation. The importance of rest and worship, we draw that from what God has done in redemption. But God set aside the Sabbath as holy for the people of Israel by making it the very sign of his covenant with them. Throughout scripture, there are various signs given as symbols of the covenants that God makes with his people. We know in Genesis that the rainbow is the sign of the covenant made with Noah. 
God is not going to destroy the earth of the flood again, and he puts his rainbow in the sky as a sign, a symbol of that promise. We know that circumcision is the sign of the covenant with Abraham. God had promised to bless Abraham and make a great nation out of him and give him this land and bless all the nations of the world through him. And circumcision was the sign that one belonged to this covenant community. And now God gathers this newly redeemed people to Mount Sinai, and he enters into a covenant with them there, the Mosaic covenant. And he gives them a sign, a symbol, that represents and reminds them about the promises that have been made, God's promise to be their God and their promise to be his people and obey his law. And this sign is the Sabbath day itself. Keeping the Sabbath was a weekly reminder of their covenant relationship with God. And friends, this is why profaning the Sabbath in Israel, treating this day like it was any other, as a common day instead of a holy day, treating this day as a day to get stuff done rather than as a day that was set apart to God, that's why it was punishable by death. It's not, again, it's not that taking naps is that important. It's that the covenant relationship they had with God was of utmost importance. To violate the Sabbath was a blatant violation of the terms of the covenant. In chapter 19, verse 8, they had committed to this. They had said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. So to violate the Sabbath was a rejection of their maker a rejection of their savior and a rejection of the one with whom they had entered into a covenant. And that's why the death penalty was prescribed because that's, because that's how they related to God. That was the sign that they were being faithful to his covenant. The Sabbath was an essential component of this Mosaic covenant. So this is the historical meaning of the covenant it is a day of rest, a day that is set aside by God that is supposed to be holy to God. He made it holy as he rested from his work in creation, as he brought his people out of slavery and allowed them to rest from their working. And he also established this day as a sign, a symbol of their covenant with him, the covenant made there at Sinai. So this is sort of the historical context that we need to understand as we study this idea of Sabbath. This is what it meant. So two um, theological clarifications I want to, to touch on. Before we get to how we can apply this today, before we get to, okay, what am I supposed to do with all this? Two things we need to clarify because there's two big questions that come up regarding the Sabbath. First of all, are Christians obligated to keep the Sabbath? When we read the Old Testament laws about working and resting and all the specifics of it, are we supposed to adhere strictly to the legal commands regarding the Sabbath? It's interesting as we read the New Testament, Jesus picked the Sabbath as the pressure point for provoking the Pharisees. He declared himself as Lord of the Sabbath. And when you realize that God was the one who ordained the Sabbath and set it apart as a day that was holy to him, for Jesus to say, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, was a really big claim. He's claiming to be God. In addition, four times Jesus did miracles of healing on the Sabbath. He healed someone and then would do things that really provoked the Pharisees, like telling them to take up their bed and walk. But Jesus was not breaking the Sabbath law in any of those situations. 
Jesus was challenging the strict regulations that the Pharisees had invented, that they had added to the law, telling people how the law was to be observed. But Jesus was in no way repudiating the Sabbath or breaking the Sabbath. In Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, which includes the Sabbath. He says, I have not come to abolish them, but to what? You guys know it. To fulfill them. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. So when we think about what it means for us, are we obligated to keep the Sabbath? We first of all have to recognize that Jesus has come to fulfill the law. The law is not to be abolished, but fulfilled. You know, when we talk about a Christian's relationship to the Old Testament law, we often group these Old Testament laws into three different categories, which is very helpful for us to understand which things um, have been fulfilled and are no longer binding, but which things may still apply uh, to us, things that have not been abolished. We talk about the law of God in three categories. There is the moral law, which reveals God's will. There is the ceremonial law, the specific instructions given to Israel as to how they were to worship him. This would include their feasts and the tabernacle and temple regulations and the sacrifices and such things. And then there was the civil law, how they were supposed to handle law-breaking, how justice was supposed to be exacted and required in their society. So there's moral law, ceremonial law, and civil law. We can sort of put different commands, different regulations in those categories. But the challenge is that the Sabbath doesn't fit neatly into any one of those categories because there's aspects of all three that are present. There's a moral dynamic to the Sabbath. There is a ceremonial aspect to the Sabbath law. And there's also civil aspects like the death penalty and, and, and not building fires and other things that are very specific. So how do we understand that? Um, three ways. Um, and it starts with this understanding. The church is not part of the old covenant that is given at Sinai. So as we understand the moral, the ceremonial, and the civil, recognize that we are not in the old covenant any longer. The church today belongs to the new covenant community in Christ. This new covenant was inaugurated through the shed blood of Jesus. And that means that things have changed. Things are different now than they were then when the people of God stood at the foot of Mount Sinai. What this means for us is that the civil aspect of keeping the Sabbath has expired. The civil requirements are not binding on us because we are not Jews living in the Old Testament Israel under the theocratic rule of God. So the strict legal regulations that applied to Israel on that day, they're out of place today because this old covenant of which the Sabbath was a sign this old covenant is no longer in place. It's been replaced by something new, something better, a new covenant in Christ that we have through his blood. So the civil aspect of keeping the, the Sabbath has expired. Likewise, the ceremonial aspect of the Sabbath has been fulfilled. Jesus fulfills the law, and so strict Sabbath keeping is no longer required in a ceremonial sense. In fact, it's interesting, this commandment of the Sabbath it's the only one of the Ten Commandments that's not explicitly repeated in the New Testament. And there's a reason for this. 
Christ has fulfilled the ceremonial aspect of the Sabbath. Paul teaches the Colossian believers in Colossians 2.16. He says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. So those would be you know, distinct laws for Old Testament Israel, those dietary restrictions. Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, those are the ceremonial laws. Paul says in verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The Sabbath is a shadow of something to come. It points forward and it's temporary in the way it's observed because the substance, the deeper meaning belongs to Christ and Christ is the fulfillment of the law, including the Sabbath. So the ceremonial aspect of the Sabbath has been fulfilled. And so it is no longer binding on believers today. But remember, there's that third category, the moral sense, the moral aspect of the law. And the moral aspect of the Sabbath command, that part of it that was not being introduced at Sinai, that part of it that was present from the beginning, that actually remains. And so there is an eternal principle in the fourth commandment a principle that we are to embrace and live in light of. And we'll give more of that in a second. So when someone asks, are we as Christians supposed to keep the Sabbath today? It's not exactly a yes and no answer. It is no in the sense that we don't keep it in the same way Israel did. We're not under the old covenant. The sign of the new covenant is not us keeping the Sabbath. It's our baptism. It's, it's something different. And likewise, the ceremonial requirements for worshipers of God, that's been fulfilled in Christ. We have the substance in Christ. So no, we are not required to keep the civil or the ceremonial aspects of the Sabbath. But yes, the moral principle of the Sabbath has implications for us today. And we are to live in light of it. We'll get to that in a moment. So that's one of the big questions that comes up with the Sabbath. Are we supposed to keep the Sabbath? There's a second question, and this will be brief. Should the Sabbath be Saturday or Sunday? Is it the seventh day like is commanded in the Old Testament? Because we're here on Sunday. The seventh day was yesterday. Today is the first day of the week. So are we out of line? Should we be doing this on Saturday? Or should we worship on Sunday but also set Saturday apart and do no work? How do we understand that? Well, again, the Old Testament, the Sabbath was Saturday, the seventh day. And technically, they would have actually started their Sabbath on sundown of Friday. They started their day not at midnight like we do. We flip over the, you know, the clock at midnight, but they actually started at sundown. So Friday night after dark would have started the Sabbath, and it would have ended um, sundown on Saturday. That's when they would have observed the Sabbath. But again, the coming of Jesus in the New Testament, it changes things. It, it changes the way we relate to God. It changes the, the dynamic of law. It, it changes everything. And it even changes the way in which we worship. In the New Testament, we find Jesus dying on Friday, Good Friday. And then he rests in the tomb on the Sabbath, as is fitting. Think about that. On the Sabbath day, the day of rest, the day when work is supposed to, to be done, the one who hung on the cross and said, it is finished. He lies silent in the grave, fulfilling the Sabbath. And then on the first day, he rose. 
And ever since that time, his followers have set aside Sunday, the first day of the week, for worship. B.B. Warfield described it this way. He said that Jesus took the Old Testament Sabbath with him into the grave. And he came out on the first day, on Resurrection Sunday, with a new day of worship, the Lord's Day. We see in the New Testament that New Testament believers set aside the first day of the week for this worship. We see it in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. We see it in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. We see that what was called my Sabbath in the Old Testament becomes the Lord's Day in the New Testament. Revelation 1.10, the Apostle John refers to the first day of the week, Sunday, as being the Lord's Day. So while many Jewish believers in the first century probably observed both, it was not necessary for Gentiles to keep the Jewish Sabbath. Again, in Colossians 2, Paul says, don't let anyone judge you as to how you observe and keep the Sabbath, whether you do it on Saturday or Sunday or, or both. He said, listen, those things are a shadow of what's to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The apostle Paul tells us there is freedom as to how we observe the Sabbath. So strict adherence to the Jewish Sabbath laws are not required for New Testament believers. So we worship on Sunday following the pattern we see in the New Testament and scripture affirms the freedom for us to do so. So those are two big questions that come up. Do Christians have to keep the Sabbath and should it be Saturday or Sunday? And hopefully that gives a little bit of clarity and that allows us to get to this point in the message where we ask, okay, that's the historical significance and you sort of clarified some things. What is the contemporary application for the Sabbath command. I'd like to share with you in the time that remains three ways that we can respond in faith and obedience to this commandment. Number one, I want to encourage you today to embrace the wisdom of rest. Embrace the wisdom of rest. Sometimes we have to be reminded that we are human. We are creatures. God is God. He is uncreated. And we have limits. When we refuse to ever rest, we're living in a way that denies that truth. It's foolish and it's arrogant. Listen, God made us and he knows what's best for us. And he knows that this creaturely rhythm of work and rest is a good thing. So don't buck against this. You know, too often we, we approach the Sabbath as if it's a burden, it's as if it's restrictive and negative thing. And the kinds of questions we ask are, so can I do this? And is it okay to do this? And it shows that we're seeing this commandment as restrictive and as limiting us. And that's just the wrong view of God's law. God's law is the path to real freedom. When we operate according to God's law, we operate according to the way that we're designed. And that's how we flourish. As Jesus said, man is not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is made for man. This is to be a blessing for us. So don't buck against this. Receive it with gratitude. Embrace the wisdom of rest. There's an epidemic of busyness in our culture. And I am as guilty as anyone. I'll raise my hand, uncle. We tend to fill every nook and cranny of our lives with activity. And we don't really stop to rest in very healthy ways. And we should ask ourselves why. Why is that? Why can't you stop? Why won't you stop? That probably says something about our hearts. Too many of us are addicted to work. 
And that shows that we look to our work to find our joy and our identity. It's whatever I can accomplish, whatever success I can have, whatever tasks I can, I can you know, check off the list, that's what makes me feel good. We're looking to work to fulfill us. It's an addiction. For some, a refusal to rest shows a greedy desire to build your own kingdom, to get money and hustle and make it and climb the ladder. We want to improve our lifestyle at all costs. You know, we can buy that boat if I can put in overtime on Sunday. It shows what it is we're really living for. For some, I think a refusal to rest really reveals fear. It's a failure to trust God to provide. We're like those people, we're like the people Israel who say, I don't know if there's going to be, be manna. I better go out and look for more. Or I don't know if what God provided today will be enough for tomorrow. I have to go out and keep my nose to the grindstone. Some of us live hand to mouth, but we can still trust God enough to rest. Trust God to provide. Don't let fear control you. Have faith. Trust God enough to stop. If you can't, if you can't stop, it shows unbelief. But for many of us, I think the fact that we don't ever stop to rest just shows that we're conformed to the world. We value what the world values, and we just can't say no. We've been discipled by our culture rather than brought into conformity with the will and wisdom of God by obeying his law. This means we need to grow. We need to grow in humility. We need to grow in faith. We need to recognize that we are not made to be omni-active, always working. Psalm 103.14 says that God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it's gone. And its place knows it no more. Do you see yourself like that? Do you see yourself as grass that withers and fades, as frail? We need to. And when we recognize our limits and our weakness, our creatureliness, then we need to live accordingly and embrace the wisdom of rest and to do it with gratitude, not as a restrictive command that, yeah, God won't let me do these things that are good, that I need to do, that would bring blessing. No, God knows what's best for us. Embrace that. So embrace the wisdom of rest. But secondly, second way we can apply this principle of the Sabbath in the fourth commandment is embrace also the priority of worship. Embrace the priority of worship. Again, I want to underscore this. If your understanding of the Sabbath is just that God has sort of, you know, sanctified us being lazy one day a week and that it's just rest for the sake of rest. It's rest only for the sake of our own refreshment. If that's your view of it, then you're missing the point. The Sabbath is about God and ultimately for God. You know, there's tons of talk today outside the church, people who don't believe in God, a lot of talk today about self-care. That's not what the Sabbath is. This is not just sanctified self-care. The Sabbath is for worship. It is for God. It is for his glory. Yes, we benefit from it, but it is ultimately for him and about him. Sunday for us is the Lord's day. We come together to worship the resurrected Christ who has redeemed us from slavery and brought us out by great act of power and grace. Christ died, was buried, and rose again, and he has led a host of captives free. That's us. That's us. 
And in this freedom that we now have, we choose to use our freedom not for our own lusts, not to pursue our own pleasure, not to pursue our own advancement. We use this freedom to glorify our Savior. Prioritize worship. Embrace the priority of worship. You know, Christ humbled himself and gave his life for us. Is it too much to set aside one day a week to worship him? You know, he really owns all seven. He could have said, six days a week you worship me, but I'll give you one day to make sure that you can go out and make enough money, you know, to get by. But he only asks for one, one day, even though he owns it all. Too many professing Christians treat church on Sunday as something that's good, but something that's optional. Something that, you know, will fit in church if we can. And what happens when we do that, I speak especially to parents here, is we're setting an example. More is caught than is taught. And when we treat church as something optional, when we treat worship as something we fit in in the margins if we have room, we're teaching our children that sleep and sports and work or home projects or whatever else it is that you fill in the blank with, that that is more important than the worship of the living God who made us and redeemed us for his namesake. That's not what we want to teach our children. And that's not what we want to communicate to God either. Some of you would never say that out loud, but that's what you model. What would it look like for worship on the Lord's day to become your priority? It might affect the kind of things you commit to. It might affect uh, what tasks you leave undone for Sunday. It might mean you work harder on Saturday to get the grass cut. It might mean, maybe I can speak to our college students or high school students. It might mean that Sunday is not the best day to catch up on all your homework. Bust your tail on Friday night. Don't sleep in till noon on Saturday. Get your stuff done so that Sunday can be set apart for, work, for, for worship and rest. Worship and rest. I almost got it really backwards there. Sunday is for worship and rest. And if that becomes your priority, it might actually change how you use your time. Maybe even your Friday nights and your Saturday mornings, which is typically me time. We spend so much me time, there's not enough left over for God. Could it change how you schedule your Saturdays? Maybe Saturday night's not the best night to stay out late. Maybe prioritizing worship on Sunday affects when we eat dinner and getting the kids a bath, you know, at a decent time so that you can get to bed so that you can get up Sunday without being exhausted, flustered, distracted. It's always a challenge, but there's some things we can do to prioritize worship. It might even affect how we plan our trips. You know, a lot of people say, you know what, I've got you know, a certain amount of days I can take off work for vacation. And so we burn Sunday as a travel day to make sure we can be at our destination the most possible days. What would it look like if we burned one of our off days that belongs to us to make sure that Sunday could be set aside for worship. Again, I'm not trying to set, set up some new law and trying to say here at this church, we're going to add regulations to scripture and we're going to make sure everybody attends church and we're keeping track. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that our hearts ought to be oriented towards the worship of God as our highest priority. And if we do that, it's actually going to mess up maybe some of your, your habits It might interfere with your lifestyle. And that's a good thing. 
It's a good thing. If you prioritize worship, it's going to mean we use our Sundays differently. Maybe you can use your Sunday lunch or maybe your evening time for fellowship with the people of God. Maybe we don't use Sunday afternoon for getting groceries and cutting the grass or doing that home project. Again, this is not a restrictive thing. It's not a law that's a negative thing that limits us. This is, God is inviting us into something that brings him great glory and brings us great blessing. And if you've never lived this way, you're missing out. It's one of those things you might be saying, you're asking me to give something up. But that's how Jesus always operates. You give something up that you think is good and he gives you something better in return. To the world, it won't make sense. They'll say, you're losing your life. And we'll say, yes, we are. And that's how it is saved. In the kingdom of God, things sometimes look upside down from the outside looking in. But those of you who have lived this way, you're nodding your heads at me this morning because you're saying, yes, I see that. And I've experienced that. I know the goodness of this. I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. It's better than getting things done. It's better than making extra money. It's better than all this other stuff we spend our time on. This pattern and the priority for worship is a good thing. You know, Jesus says something amazing. He tells us to come to him to find rest, but he describes it as a yoke. A yoke is a symbol of work, of doing. And a yoke is limiting because an oxen or, or a donkey or some animal that's hitched up to a yoke, it doesn't get to go wherever it wants. It goes where it's driven. We take Christ's yoke upon us. We don't go wherever we want. We go where we are directed by his word. His word. But Jesus says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. It's a good thing. In 1 John 5, 3, the apostle writes, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. You say, it feels burdensome to me. Well, notice the connection here. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. If you love him and if you keep his commandments out of a heart of love for him, you will come to experience these commandments as not a burden, but a blessing. What makes the difference is your faith and whether or not you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you don't, if you're trying to give God the least amount possible to get by and you don't love him, you love yourself, something like the Sabbath will be a burden, as will all the other commandments. But when you love the Lord and delight in him, when you take his yoke upon you, you will experience it as a light burden. It will not be burdensome to you. It will be a joy. It will be a joy. Those who set aside worship and rest, they know this. They've experienced this. The rhythm of our lives as those who claim to worship God ought to be different than the rhythm of life for people who reject him. It should look different. So if there's little discernible difference between us and the world when it comes to rest and worship and even the way we order our week, if there's no discernible difference, then something is wrong. And some of you might say, well, I don't really need rest. I have a desk job, so I'm like amped up with energy at the end of the week. That's fine. Um, that doesn't mean you have to sleep all day on Sunday. There's other ways to find refreshment and to make the day different. Maybe, you know, some of you guys are kids and you're like, summer break is coming up and I'm nine years old. I don't have a job. So does this really apply to me? How do I stop working? I tell my mom I don't have to make my bed. Is that what this means? Um, no, it doesn't mean you don't have to make your bed. But even if you're a kid or even if you're retired or even if you don't feel the need for rest, 
Listen, God calls us to set aside time for worship and for rest. And that there is freedom here in how we apply this. This A day of rest might look different for you than it looks for me. And that's fine. We're not to judge one another or feel judged by others when it comes to this. But ultimately, there should be something different. There should be something different. So embrace the wisdom of rest. Embrace the priority of worship. And then finally, I want to exhort you today, embrace Christ as your spiritual rest. Embrace Christ. There is a rest that we enter into now through faith in Christ. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, we mentioned it earlier. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We sang about this rest this morning. It's like Carrie knew the commandment that we were going to be covering today or something. We rest in Christ. It is a spiritual rest and an eternal rest. The Sabbath points us to the necessity of a spiritual resting in the finished work of Christ and in his promises to us. He is our rest. He is our redemption. He is the substance to which the Sabbath points. And through Christ, there is a future eternal rest that is coming. Hebrews 4.9 says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. When we come to Christ and we rest in his promises, we stop our working, our striving to please God in our own strength, our our efforts to, to preserve our own soul and make ourselves acceptable to God and clean ourselves up and fulfill all the law. We rest from that and we simply receive the grace of God in Christ. And that is a guarantee to us as we rest from our working and our striving that we will one day enter that eternal rest. Sabbath is not just an echo of Eden when God first rested. It is also a foretaste of the eternal rest that we will enjoy in the new creation. There will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more suffering. There will be no more striving against the devil, no more striving to swim upstream in this world, no more striving against our own sin. We will rest. It's an eternal rest, and it's found in Christ. It's found in Christ. Really, this kind of resting in Christ is just another word for faith. That's what it is. To believe in Jesus is to trust him fully, to rely on him and rest the full weight of our heart, our fears, our needs, our weakness, our guilt, our shame, our hopes, all of it, we rest it on Christ. And it's those who rest in Christ in this way, who place their faith in him, who are destined to enter an eternal rest, an eternal life with Christ in glory. So if you today are far from God, then what he calls you to today is not to try harder and do better. The good news is that Christ is our rest. Come to him in faith and trust in him. Receive the gift of salvation from him and decide today to repent of your sin and to stop relying on yourself and to rest in Christ. Trust in him. If you're a discouraged Christian today, if you feel the burden of your ongoing battle with sin, your ongoing battle with doubt, your ongoing battle with all the things we wrestle with on a daily basis, be exhorted today, rest in Christ. He is our rest. 
If you're weary and worn down with the cares of this world, with sorrow at all that is going on in the world out there, if you're worn down by the pain of personal trials, whether it be physical suffering or emotional suffering, come and rest in Christ. Find comfort in him today. He is our rest. As creatures made by God and saved for God, we are to set aside regular time for rest and worship. This is not a burden to us. It is not a barrier to our happiness and joy. It is a gift. It's a gift. The Sabbath was made for man. And we're to observe it in such a way that honors and glorifies God. May we order our lives in obedience to the principle that is set forth in this commandment. And let's look to Christ as the substance, the one in whom we find our rest. Father, we thank you that you are a good and wise and gracious God. And you know our frame. You know that we are but dust. We're like the grass that withers and crumbles and blows away in the wind. And you have not called us to an eternal striving, to a constant working. You have provided through your son Jesus the finished work of redemption at the cross. You provided for us a pattern of working six days and resting and worshiping on the seventh. You know what's good for us. You've provided for our needs. Lord, increase our faith today. Help us to trust you enough to obey this commandment. And I pray that you would give us wisdom. Lord, give us wisdom to know how this should apply in our lives. We know it will look different for different people. Not all will, will have the same exact patterns and practices. Lord, help us to see this as a gift to be enjoyed rather than as a restriction. And I pray that you would give us wisdom and humility, that we would build in regular times of rest. I pray that we would set aside time to worship you to prioritize worship on the Lord's day. And Lord, help us always look to your son Jesus and rest fully and finally in him. We praise you because you have done what we could not. You have accomplished a work that, that lay outside of our ability. You fulfilled the law, Jesus, and died for our sin. And now you offer us rest and peace. Lord, if there's any who don't know you today, call them to yourself. Help them to cease from their striving and to rest in the promise of the gospel. Amen.